Dear Lord, we thank you for this time. Um, it is a great joy to get to come together uh, in the middle of the week uh, to consider your word, to consider what you want us to hear, to look at how you have dealt with your people, how you have warned them, how you have corrected them, how you have been merciful and graceful with them, how you have instructed them, how you have led them, how you have protected them, and to know that the same God um, does all those things for us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to climb into the Exodus story uh, tonight in a way that goes beyond um, just reading it as a history lesson. I pray that you would allow us to climb into it, um, uh, seeing our story as the story of a people that goes back uh, many years. So I pray that any disconnection we have as we engage this, if if some of us are more used to maybe reading the New Testament than the Old Testament or we're not used to really engaging these as part of our story, I pray that any distance and any, any disconnect that you would by the work of your Holy Spirit, take that away and allow us to see uh, this for what it is. Lord, I also pray that as classes are starting back up and people are getting back into the swing of things with uh, everything from school to drama to dance to athletics um, to a number of other things, I pray that you would allow us as a people to keep a pace that lends itself to steadfastness. I pray that you would allow us to not get caught up in something that we have no control over, but as we're learning in Hebrews on Sunday morning, that we would, uh, in fact, exercise dominion over our schedules and make sure that it is worshipful no matter how crazy it gets. Um, and if it's too crazy to be worshipful, I pray that you would help us with that. Uh, help us to have discernment. Help us to have wisdom. So knowing... Uh, all the schedules are ramping back up. It's that much more of a sweet privilege to gather, to have a few minutes in the middle of the week to just look at your word and see more, understand more of who you are, who we are, and, and what your will is for us. Lord, I'm thankful uh, for the word. I'm thankful that it's breathed out by you. I'm thankful that it is all that we need for, for instruction and correction and training in righteousness and for warning. Um, I'm thankful that it's not a dead word, but it's a very much uh, a live word. I'm also thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if there was no Holy Spirit, um, I would absolutely not have the goods to be able to communicate this clearly, and none of us would have the goods to be able to receive it clearly. And so um, I do pray uh, that the Spirit would... Um, would be here and would give us clarity, understanding, wisdom, insight, discernment. I pray that even as notes have been prepared, that you would give me and give us insight um, as we're reading and as we're looking uh, that will help us to be more um, worshipful in the lives that we live. Lord, make us know the measure of our days and uh, allow us to seek your glory in all that we do. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for having a reason to study the word and to pray and to have fellowship together. And uh, we count it a sweet privilege to be called your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Exodus 20. Please. Again, if this is your first time with us, we are going through Exodus. If you're just forgetful, we're going through Exodus. We will be... Um, recapping uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we finished the 10th commandment last time we met, so we're going to kind of dive back into Exodus, um, the Exodus story actually tonight. So the, at least the first half of our time and study is going to be climbing back in um, so that we can engage this rightly. Um, so uh, I think January of 2011 is when we started Exodus, so we're tracking. It's good. They're at Mount Sinai for about a year, and I think we will be too. So um, that works out well. I'm going to read aloud Exodus 20, and then I'm going to go back and just kind of climb in from, from the end of Genesis to, to see how we got to the base of Mount Sinai. So Exodus 20 verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Our focus tonight, after we climb back into this, is going to be in verses 18 through 21, and then we'll start talking about the many different various crazy laws um, that are um, in the coming verses that are sort of hard to engage. But I'd like to take a few minutes to climb back into Exodus. Currently, we as a people, and they as a people, are sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, where we in Israel will spend the better part of a year but the question is, how did we get there? What brought us to this place where God is giving the law to a, a people who are in the middle of, uh, they've been coming through the desert, now they're at Mount Sinai, this uh, mountainous terrain, it is not the promised land. What are we doing here? What is God's purpose in this, and how did we get here? Over 400 years before, a guy named Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, but gained a great standing with Pharaoh. Now, how did he get sold into slavery? His brothers threw him in the pit. That is not good brotherly love. And so this was a bad thing. And God had a purpose even in such a horrible thing as throwing your brother in a pit and selling him into slavery in a foreign country. But when he got there, he gained a good standing with Pharaoh. Do you all remember how he gained that standing with the Pharaoh at the time? Dreams. What did he do with those dreams? He interpreted dreams. Now, why is that significant? It came true, which shows us what was actually going on in those dreams. Yeah, exactly. God was speaking in those dreams, and he gave Joseph some insight and some clarity that he would otherwise not have to be able to interpret these dreams for the Pharaoh. So it was God's will that this family, about 70 in number at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, that this family, about 70 in number, who would come to be known as the Israelites, would come to live in Egypt, particularly in what land? Do you all remember? Goshen, in Egypt, particularly in Goshen, where they would be able to have provision during hard times. So it's interesting because they were kept in Goshen because they were considered mostly dirty to the Egyptians. They were a foreign people who were less than the the true Egyptian people in their minds, and so they put them in Goshen, yet that ended up being a sweet place of provision and protection for them. So over time, God's promise to Abraham, what was God's promise to Abraham, Abraham from Genesis 12? Yeah, the sand and the stars. 
God's promise to Abraham for offspring as numerous as the sand and the stars would become a reality. But a new king, a new Pharaoh, came to power in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. It's sort of like getting a new boss that doesn't know how awesome you are. That could turn out bad. And that's what happened with Joseph. So instead of seeing God's blessing on this people who were living in Goshen, the new Pharaoh uh, saw the Israelites as a threat. Now, why would they be seen as a threat? There's so many of them, yeah. Um, new guy comes into power and says, what are all these people doing? And why are there so many of them? Because if you look, they were really reproducing. So he worried that they would try to overthrow the government because of how numerous they had become. So the new Pharaoh's solution was what? What did the new Pharaoh do? Yeah, first, he's going to kill all these baby boys. Well, that, that, that's a problem. And, and what happened with little baby Moses? Went in the little baby basket, little baby ark, with covered in pitch and saved. Moses' name means drawn out. So that's not coincidental. That's God's purpose and intention in this. So he's drawn out of, of that watery ordeal, uh, which we'll see this as a theme. And um, Moses would have a pretty key role that we'll engage in a few minutes. So the new Pharaoh uh, was going to do that. But what, he, what also did he do to their work environment? Because they were servants. They were slaves. Yeah, very oppressive, very hard. What, what did he do in their brick making? Say that again. Yeah, it took away the straw. That, that makes it harder. Take my word for it. So the Pharaoh's solution was to work them hard, change their work environment for the worse, and um, their affliction grew. And it became very difficult for the Israelite people. So they went from sort of flourishing in this protected place in Goshen to being very afflicted. And things were very hard for them. And so like we often do, they cried out to God um, and God heard their cry. And God's response uh, came in large part with this man named Moses, who he would call to lead his people out of slavery and oppression. So from how was Moses called by God? Do you remember? The burning bush. From the burning bush, Moses receives his calling. And what follows is a magnificent display of God's power via plagues on Egypt. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And the result is, do y'all remember the first one? See how close we pay attention. No, not the first one. It's like the ninth one. I mean, you're way off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the Nile turned to blood. I'm going to totally, like, do away with anyone wanting to speak up. The hands are wrong. I'm going to mock you. Sorry about that. It's an official forgiveness. It's recorded. Sorry. Um, and, and you'll be apologizing later. Um, so uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and the result is that the Nile turns to blood. Well, why is that a problem? Who cares if the river turns to blood? Nothing to drink. That is their water source. So they would be trying to dig on the sides of the river to get down to clean water, and the result was all that hard work, and it's still blood. So the, the water was turned to blood. Even the water that was kept in the containers in the homes was turned to blood. God was making a point here, and it was not just some natural phenomena, coincidence that happened. So um, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The result is the Niles turned to blood. The people's homes and fields are covered in frogs and gnats and flies. The livestock are killed. People are covered in boils. Hail the size of VW bugs falls from the sky, crushing all that is left. Locusts destroy anything else that is left in the fields. And then a darkness falls on Egypt. That was, it was so dark it could be felt. This is completely real. This is not a fairy tale. This is not... Long ago in a faraway land, everything about this is completely real. And we have to see this as our story. We have to see God going to these links, to these great links, to show his power and his dominion over these circumstances and showing that he has a purpose and a will in the whole thing. All the while, God's people in the land of Goshen are guarded and protected from every one of the plagues. Their stuff wasn't eaten by the flies, and they weren't covered in boils, and they didn't have the darkness that could be felt. It's interesting that in Goshen, which is in Egypt, they, they were protected. But finally comes the last plague of the Passover, where all of the firstborn in Egypt, including that of the Israelites, who were not covered by the blood of the Passover lamb, remember, 
feast and consume it completely, loins girded, staff in hand, blood on the lintel and the doorposts, so that when the winged destroyer comes by, if he sees the blood of the Passover lamb, your firstborn are protected. But where that is not, your firstborn lose their lives. Very sobering circumstance. As Pharaoh mourns the death of his firstborn, he refuses to let the Israelites stay now. The things have changed quite a bit with all these plagues. They are now not only released from slavery, they're not just free to go, but they're forced to leave. They leave, and on the way out, they plunder the Egyptians verbally, which is an interesting way to plunder. Israel is continually delivered even after leaving Egypt. So it wasn't, okay, you're out of Egypt, that's over, end of story, way to go, God, be for victory. Um, they continued needing deliverance. And so the story continues that um, the first, what was the first way in which they needed deliverance again right after they left? Do you all remember? The Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh changed his mind, decided, no, no, I don't want them to leave. That's going to be bad. And so they go and they need deliverance from Pharaoh's army, not just any army, but he put his best, most intimidated chariots and troops together. They're bearing down on this, uh, on Israel, who is surrounded by um, wilderness and then army and then Red Sea. And God um, lets them cross through the Red Sea on on dry ground and delivers them. Then he delivers them from hunger via bread from heaven, via the manna. And then he delivers them from thirst via water from a rock. And then Amalek wants to go to war with them, and he delivers them via the war by allowing them to fight in a way that they do not lose, and they conquer. After catching up with Jethro and getting some administrative things in order, Moses is led by God with all of Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, which is where we are tonight. Ultimately, God brings Israel here, and God is bringing us here to fear him rightly. If you're writing down notes, that's something to write. As we're here, we are learning how to fear God rightly. And even today, after seeing all this and reading these stories over and over and climbing in and understanding what's going on, we still have a problem fearing God rightly. And so that's what we're continuing to learn uh, even tonight, to fear Him rightly, to learn what is pleasing to Him, and to see how we are to live during our journey to our final destination. Mount Sinai is not the promised land, and Hunt County is not your eternal dwelling. For some of y'all, that's the best news you've heard all day. (laughs) Hunt County is not your eternal dwelling. So um, we find ourselves in similar circumstances, and there's, there's many, many parallels. God will reveal these realities to them and to us by filling them and us with awe, there is a certain amount of awe that I think God is completely worthy of and, and expects. We're not to fall out of awe. So he fills us with awe and he gives us the commandments. So I urge you to see this big picture. The big picture is that God has redeemed this people that they would walk in obedience. You've been redeemed that you would walk in obedience. And there's really no room for excuses. No one is exempt from holiness. Holiness is not optional. The reality of grace does not trump the call to holiness. It's not that they had to be holy because they were under the law and then later on grace came around and so we're cool and we don't need to be holy. That is not how it works. That is a gross misunderstanding of God's grace, God's justice, and the call to be holy. So the reality of grace does not trump the call to holiness. It's not, oh, well, I'm I'm being completely unholy, but it's okay because I'm under grace. That shows you don't understand Jesus at all. And without a view of God's holiness... I don't believe that we will find any reason to pursue personal holiness. Without a view of God's holiness, without sitting at the base of Mount Sinai with the Israelites, having gone through all that has been gone through, if we don't grab hold of a a view and perspective and an understanding of God's holiness, without doing that, we really won't find good reason to pursue personal holiness, even as we sit here tonight. So God gives his people his commandments. This is the means by which they will lead uh, what God identifies as an acceptable life. The commandments are the means by which we can embrace holiness in large part. And we considered from and with uh, one of the commentators that the law of the Lord was addressed to those brought out of bondage. And its aim was not to bring them into a new bondage, but rather to establish them in their new freedom. 
the aim was not, okay, well, those were the rules in Egypt, but now that you're at the base of Mount Sinai and I'm God, I got thunder, I got lightning, I'm making the ground shake, there's smoke coming out, now, now you're under a new bondage under this. No, he's, he's helping them to understand how they are established in their new freedom. It's not being brought into a new bondage. It's freedom, ultimately, really, in Christ. So that's how we're going to think and read from this point forward. That's how we're going to engage this, that we are operating, learning to operate in our new freedoms? How do we exist? How do we function in the new freedoms that we have in our Savior, in the one who has delivered us, and the one who has redeemed us? We're being established in our new freedom, and grace leads us to the law, not away from it. That's a misunderstanding. That's, that's a bad doctrine and a bad teaching that has crept into our churches. I would say maybe in large part that the Old Testament had the law, but grace just leads us away from that law into something different. In fact, grace was there before the law. Grace was not an afterthought. Jesus was not concocted in the mind of God to fix this problem of, uh-oh, the law didn't work. We can see that. I mean, in the last 20 minutes, we've covered 23 minutes. We've covered um, like 400 years of watching God's big, awesome, mighty plan And so grace wasn't, Jesus wasn't thought up as an afterthought, like, "Uh uh-oh, this this isn't working. They're not keeping the law. They're still unclean. Um, Grace, in fact, leads us to the law, not away from it. And in grace, God's aim is not just to get us to act differently. As we're engaging the commandments, it's very important for us to remember that. God's aim was not to get this group of a few million Israelites just to start acting different. He didn't, he didn't break through with the thunder and the lightning and say, I just need their behavior to change and I can use them for my glory if the, if the behavior will just change. It, that, that would be a very limited view of what's going on here. Um, truly, his goal is for us to be different, changed, actually changed in our hearts by the power of God through redemption, not just acting differently, but actually being different because of our Redeemer. And now we climb into verses 18 through 21. So before I read these verses, I want to warn you against something. Oftentimes, these verses, Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21, um, are treated much in the same way that we treat our 17th birthday, our 19th birthday, and every birthday after our 21st birthday. Does that make sense? It's like all the cool stuff already happened. This is just sort of ho-hum. That, these verses cannot be neglected. Yes, the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, boom. God literally and figuratively just laid down the law. It's a big deal. But we can't look at the following verses as, as, as we do on, on those birthdays where it's like we act as though all the exciting stuff has already happened. What follows is less important, subpar in comparison, and largely depressing. That's not the case with these verses. We cannot approach them in such a manner. So look at verses 18 through 19 particularly. So he's given the law. Peals of thunder, lightning, smoke, the ground is shaking. And he says, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, which is as his voice was coming through, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Remember, we were brought to Sinai to learn to fear God rightly. Remember, we established that up front tonight. We were brought to Sinai to learn to fear God rightly. And so, simply, uh, my question is, is this fear of God right that we're seeing here? Are God's people responding to such a revelation faithfully and fearing God rightly? What do y'all think? I'm seeing a bunch of this. So why? Why do y'all not think? Why does, what is not right about this? What's off about their response? Yeah, they didn't want to hear from God more. That, that's a red flag. What else? Yeah. 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 He just came down and said, this is the way your life is supposed to be. That means changes. And their first response is, ooh, we don't want to hear from him anymore. Um, that's scary, and you, you could, we'll hear from you. And, but not just scary, 
what were they actually fearful of? Death. Have you ever been so scared that you really thought you were going to die? If you have, think about what that was like. They truly feared their lives. They, they thought they were going to die. Now, to put it simply, the answer is no. This is not right fear for the reasons that we've mentioned. But let's go look at some other pieces of Scripture to help us understand why their fear of God in this moment is unhealthy. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. To the right. We're going to look at a handful of verses in Deuteronomy. And then we're going to look at a handful of verses in Psalm. And at each verse, I'm going to ask, what is revealed about proper fear of the Lord? Because in going to these other satellites, we can understand, we see that they were far off from God. Well, that's not what God wants. God has them there for the purpose of drawing them near, drawing them out of where they were so that they can be with him. Um, They were fearful to the degree that they thought that they would die. And they were more concerned about their own realities being changed or altered or messed with, as opposed to what God had just said is going to change as he laid down the law. So, what is revealed about the proper fear of the Lord in these verses? Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. Oh, let's just start in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. What is revealed about proper fear of the Lord in those verses? It's, it leads to obedience. What else is revealed? They should be taught. Yeah, particularly to who? Your children and the coming generations. Okay, look at 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. What do we learn about the fear of the Lord in this verse? Say that again. Fear only God. And what goes with that fear in that verse? Worship. In, in particularly in what way? Serving, yeah. Serve the Lord because you fear him. So we're, we're beginning to see what we're supposed to do if we rightly fear the Lord. So if we sitting here rightly fear the Lord, if we wrongly fear the Lord, we're going to distance ourselves from him. We're going to distance ourselves from his people. But if we rightly fear him, it's going to lead to service. It's going to lead to obedience. It's going to lead to communicating the will of God to our children and to the coming generations. So we have that at least. Look at 624. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. What else do we learn about the fear of the Lord in Deuteronomy 624? It's for our good. They did not see that at the base of Mount Sinai. They thought, this is not for good. Let's distance ourselves. So we have to know it's for our good. Say that again. It leads to life instead of death, which they feared death. So they didn't have a right fear. What else? Yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Like he preserves us through fear of him. He doesn't preserve us through ease of circumstance. He doesn't preserve us by taking away all the bad people who we don't like that make our days wrong and unfun. Unfun, that's right, I said it. He, he preserves us via fear of him. Okay, look at 10.12. Turn just a few chapters over, Deuteronomy 10.12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. What do we learn there about the fear of the Lord? Right fear of the Lord. It's required. It's not an optional thing. Should result in obedience. We're beginning to see a theme. It's for your good. It's not optional. It results in obedience. It results in, uh, what does it say? Um, uh, you fear the Lord, walk in his ways. It's, it's linked to love. Uh, you serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. You're not just going through the motions. You're not proving that you rightly fear the Lord if you just go through the motions. If you just go through the motions of maybe just getting up and going through the motions of a quiet time and going through motions of prayer and going through motions of saying right things at right time, you, you could very easily do that without your heart or your soul engaged at all. So we have to be careful of that because that shows an improper fear of the Lord, which is not right. Look at uh, 13.4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. What do we learn about proper fear in these verses? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You don't just go and walk with the Lord for a few moments while you're eight, and that's it. It's it's a consistent it's consistent walking. Um, a conversational pace is something else we've learned about um, this year. What else is in those verses? Thirteen four. That we learn about fear, right fear. Yes. Yeah. What are some ways to actually hold fast? This is that Christiany language. Hold fast, brother. Okay. What does it mean? Holding fast. What? What is that? To hold on tightly. Endure. Yes. To hold on tightly to the Lord, you have two hands, and you can't hold on tightly to these things and these things and possessions and and accolades and approval of men and all you you can't you don't have enough hands to do that. And so holding tightly to the Lord means holding less tightly to the to other things. How else do we hold fast practically? Say that again. Undivided attention. When is the last time you had quiet, uninterrupted thoughts in regards to your Lord? 2002. (laughs) Some people have a date. (laughs) Her husband's approving. It was 2002. We have to have time, and I do not want to make light of the fact that this is very difficult for some. I do not want to make light of that. But there has to be time when we are alone with our thoughts, time that is devoted, that's like devotionals, root word devoted, not to other things, particularly to time with God. Um... Time that's devoted particularly to the Lord in prayer, in reading the word, in thinking through the things that you have heard. To walk in the things we have heard, we first have to think about things. To think about things, we have to listen to them. So anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. The reason we think about it is so that we can walk in it. So if you have no time, no uninterrupted time with the Lord uh, in quiet I would say that's a problem because that's one of the key ways, I think, that we can hold fast to God. Um, that gives us fuel in times that we need. It allows us to have clarity when we need to recall Scripture at times where Scripture is the, is the, the truth, the thing that will help us through a very hard circumstance. So I would encourage you that time alone with the Lord um, is very important. We talk a lot about, you know, watch your schedules. The schedules can get crazy to where all of a sudden you look and, what happened? I sat down in a deer stand with my dad this week, this Saturday, and I sat there and I looked over at him and I said, Dad, this is the first time we've done this in 22 years. How did that happen? 
we've not sat in a deer stand in 22 years. And, uh, and then he made a joke about how I was asleep on the floor last time. I was nine. Um, but it's like, when did that happen? That, that just, bam. 20, I can remember being a nine-year-old sitting in a deer stand with my dad like it was yesterday. But before you know it, 22 years pass, and, and, and there you are. And so um, time, quiet time with the Lord, I would say, is important. That, that is one means by which we truly hold fast uh, to our God. Look at Deuteronomy 31. Turn to the end of the book. Towards the end. 31, 12 through 13. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. What do we learn about proper fear here? I like this one. For everyone? What? Teach it, particularly when? Model it, absolutely. When we assemble, this is important. Assemble the people. Someone teaches. And what is it? What else do we learn about fear? It can be what? Learned. Have you thought about that? Fear can be learned. If you think, if you're sitting here thinking, I don't know if I fear the Lord, I haven't thought about fearing the Lord and Years or months, what is it to fear the Lord? Fearing the Lord can be learned in the same way that we read in Titus that loving your children can be learned. That's pretty remarkable. That gives us hope if if we see, if we look at our circumstances and say, "Ah, I don't know, I'm not there. It can be learned, particularly when we assemble and the fear of the Lord and his commandments are taught. That shows importance of church. Having a church home is a very important thing. Not just so others can keep tabs on you and get all up in your business, but because we assemble and we teach truth and then we try to learn it so we can walk in it for the glory of God and for our joy, ultimately. Um, Turn over to Psalm 2. It's near the beginning. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. What else do we learn about fear of the Lord? Service is something that's repeated. What else do we see here? Rejoicing. So those who truly fear the Lord serve the Lord. They assemble. They gather. They listen to the teaching. They hold fast. And ultimately they rejoice. That's something that was not there at the base of Mount Sinai. They didn't rejoice immediately. They were too scared of dying. So it wasn't proper fear. Look at 19 verse 9 in Psalm Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What do we learn about the fear of the Lord in those verses? It is clean and it endures. Oh, to have more things in life like that that are clean and endure. This is, what does it mean that it's clean? What do y'all think? Pure. What else? Yeah, untainted, not dirty. Yeah, it, it is, the fear of the Lord is clean. It's, it's not, in fearing the Lord, if, if you're worried about it being somehow um, not right or sideways or unclean, don't. The fear of the Lord is clean. Uh, enduring forever. And look over at Psalm 22, verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. So we learn here that it goes with praise and glorifying him. He is all about his glory. God is all about his glory. And he fills his people with awe that we might rejoice and that we might praise him and that we might glorify him. To glorify him is to put his glory on display. So people look at our lives and rather than seeing our awesomeness, they see the greatness, the unmatched greatness of our God who is working in and through us by the work of the Spirit. 
That's what it is to glorify God. And look at Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. I think this is hard to understand for a lot of us, the friendship of the Lord. I know it's hard for me to understand because if you have someone so mighty, so awesome, so strong and so perfect and so pure and so righteous, it's hard to say that we could be their friend because somehow that would mean that there's got to be some way to bridge the gap between how they are and how we are. That's what we have in Christ, friendship with our Lord. If you only see him like those at the base of Mount Sinai, you fear him and you just want to kind of get away from him. And those who are close to him, you don't really want to be too close to them. That's, that's wrong fear. But a right fear says, somehow the one who is making the ground tremble and smoke and the thunder and the peals of lightning, I can call a friend because of a work that he's done. That should be remarkable to everyone who claims themselves a child of God. Father and friend. So in a sense, God's voice was too much for the people to bear. If you turn back to Exodus 20, go ahead and turn back over there. Actually, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 40, and then we'll go back to Exodus 20. Sorry. Um, in a sense, God's voice was too much for them to bear. They, they literally feared their very lives. Now, this is why the leadership of Moses was so important. Moses steps in when the people may have a tendency to run from God and encourages them not to. I want you all to see this in the the next verses. Moses will step in, and when people are saying, let us get away from God, I want to distance myself from God, Moses, a good leader, steps in and says, no, 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 no. Let me give you some clarity here. Let me try to help you have right fear instead of wrong fear. That's, That's a sign of a good leader. Someone who can step in and keep people from running away from God by giving them truth that helps them to fear God rightly and and not wrongly. Because usually when there's people distancing themselves from God, it's a result of a misunderstanding and wrong fear and not wanting to be too close to to him. So um, we're going to look at Moses' encouragement so that we can see what we do if we want to run from God or if we're counseling someone who wants to run from God. But before we do that, before we look at what he says, For a moment, I want you to consider what mercy it is that Moses is even there. Like in the next verse, Moses is going to help them. But I want you all to see what a huge, crazy, wonderful mercy it is that Moses is even there. God did not have to provide a Moses to intercede for the people. But because of the weakness and because of the frail nature of the people... God did provide a Moses, which is pretty remarkable. I think it's important that God's people regularly recount and acknowledge where God has dealt with them in a merciful manner. We did some of that on December 5th when we gathered for a night of recounting and we heard from different people how God has been merciful and what his wonderful deeds have been. But God deals with us in in merciful manners and uh, he goes to great lengths to lead us along and provide um, comfort where it's needed. God comforts you. God calls you friend. These are amazing realities. So in Isaiah 40, verse 11. I want us to see, it's just so easy to have an imbalanced picture of God. It's easy to have this imbalanced perspective that says, he's so far and so distant and so good, I have no business even even uttering his name or praying or singing. That's an imbalance. And, and I think Isaiah 40 is one of those, I've heard it as being a chapter with Psalm 78 that helps us to not lose our awe. But what it's really doing is just giving us a really rounded out, robust picture of who our Lord is. And Isaiah 40 verse 11, just consider, this is the same God who made the ground shake and the peals of thunder and lightning and the smoke and spoke and it was like a trumpet to the people same God, in Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those that are with young. When I see young mommies struggling 
losing their minds, trying to keep everything together and not forget someone. Um, I, I'm reminded of this verse. He gently leads those that are with young. Is there anything more helpless and fragile than a lamb? Picture God, the same God at Mount Sinai, stooping to gather them in his arms and carry them in his bosom in a caring way. That is our God. Look at, skip down to verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Some of us need to be reminded of the character of our God. Trying to understand our God takes time. There, I, would, I would suggest that after looking at these verses, y'all should spend time alone thanking God for being so utterly outside of anything we can even fully comprehend and so wonderful, so merciful, so mighty as to make the ground shake, but so tender as to lead those that are with young, with lambs gathered as he's walking with them. One of, my, one of the things that helps me slow down on any given day is when my son needs to eat a bottle. I can't hurry that process up. I have tried, and I have tried. But you sit, and you hold him, and you give him the bottle, and you're forced to just show lots of patience. Whatever needs to get done is not going to get done until they're done with that bottle. Because if you take that bottle out of their mouth too early, they will bite your face off and scream and thrash. So I picture God, who has much more to do than any of us, Stooping to take up a lamb who's having a hard time getting along the path. To, to while having the lambs in his arm, turning around to one who is with young and saying, it's okay, come on, I, I will take care of you. I am your shepherd. That is remarkable. So next time you're feeding your kid, think about that. Turn back to Exodus 20. We'll finish with this. Exodus 20, verse uh, 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Do not fear. Like the fear you're having that's unhealthy, don't fear like that. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So how does Moses inform their fear? Well, there's a difference between being crippled by fear and being governed by fear. There's a difference between being crippled by fear and being governed by fear. So what does it mean to have the fear of God before us? I think that it means that all of our living, every circumstance, every conversation, every major decision, every minor decision is done in a manner of worship. Worship in light of who God is and what God commands. I think that's what it means to have the fear of God before us. So what is ultimately being said here is fear God and kill sin. He, he says it so that, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Another piece of scripture talks about um, kill sin, sever it, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. It doesn't say wounded, it doesn't say dabbling, it says kill it. Sin separates you from God, that's why. And so he gives us the means in himself to be able to do such a thing as killing sin. So fear God and kill sin. And then in verse 21, it's a pretty, it's like the end of a good movie almost. Although the next verses are important and we're not going to treat them like our 22nd birthday or whatever. Verse 21 says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I think he was probably wearing a duster, had like a shotgun or something. You see him walking into it. But it's pretty, um, pretty cool that as we close, we close with, would Moses have always done that? 
No. What happened when God called Moses the first time and the second time and the third time? I don't talk good. You remember that? Moses said, I don't talk good. I can't. So he gave him Aaron. Um, but he was not this bold. Like when we talk about Moses as a leader, I mean, if you go to spiritual leadership classes, or anything, a lot of times Moses is used, he uses this, the man who spoke for the Lord and he stood with the people and he held the staff and he led them through this and all that. God's strength was absolutely made perfect in Moses' weakness. And here we see it displayed in a people fearing, wanting to draw away from God, and he draws near to the thick darkness where God is. So this once bold, or this once timid Moses is moving boldly toward God while others are working through their fear. This is often the role of a good leader. It is not enough for Moses to simply explain right fear and obedience. He, like all other spiritual leaders, are called to model it and not just proclaim it. If there is ever a time where the leadership of this church, where your elders, where deacons will proclaim something, but they refuse to model it, at that moment they are untrustworthy. It's a big statement. We must teach to obey, not just proclaim things to be obeyed. The best thing Moses could have done is exactly what he did. That's how we close the chapter. The best thing he could have done he didn't, he didn't need to coddle the people, and it's okay. I know it's scary. The best thing he could have done is exactly what he did. He drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Next week, we're going to pick up with laws on altars and laws about slaves and laws about restitution and laws about social justice and laws about if someone kills your ox and laws about Sabbaths and festivals. We're going to have to dig in in the coming weeks. I promise you there are many things about Jesus in these laws that seem tedious and cumbersome and annoying. So um, don't say, well, we got Exodus 20. I'll come back in a few weeks once we get through the laws. Um, There's some pretty remarkable truths in there that I have never seen until I'm being forced to teach through them. So um, let's pray and, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we're thankful for this time. I am thankful for your law. I'm thankful for... um, the reminder of how wonderful you are. Um, my, my prayer tonight um, from this is that you would allow us to fear you rightly, that you would allow leaders to lead well, and that you would be glorified in the way that your people conduct themselves throughout the very short amount of time we have on the earth. You are great and greatly to be praised, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.